Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, the fifth of our year-long series, we discuss sustainable seafood. And for me personally, the topic of seafood is interesting, not only because I like to eat, but I was also a competitive swimmer, so I cared a great deal about my health, and I still do. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a better or healthier form of protein. Now, from a food security standpoint, seafood will be critical as our world population is expected to reach 9.7 billion by 2050. That's nearly 2 billion more than our current population. And for the U.S., seafood is a huge part of our economy, as the experts on our panel will describe. But the U.S. has a $16.8 billion seafood trade deficit, and over 80% of the seafood we consume is imported, and half of that is from foreign fish farms. So this episode will, episode will explore the extraordinary opportunity that sustainable seafood presents to our economy, especially through aquaculture. And our fisheries are also under threat. So we'll, we'll address how advanced technologies and partnerships will help us optimize sustainable yields of our wild-caught fisheries, expand contributions of domestic aquaculture, adapt to climate change, and combat the negative effects of one of our greatest challenges, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Our fisheries are facing really major threats in all these areas, and we'll look to find solutions as we go through today's show. So for today's episode, uh, I want to introduce just really an all-star lineup of people in the seafood sector. First, I'd like to introduce Anthony Del Ponte, the general counsel for Pacific Seafood Group and a key influencer of the seafood policy progress we made at NOAA over the last four years. Tony, thank you for joining us. Hey, Admiral. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. All right. We also have Dr. David Kerstetter, Associate Professor at Nova Southeastern University and one of my oldest daughter's instructors at NSU, where she is minoring in marine biology. David, thanks for your positive influence on her and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. And we also have Dr. Kelly Lucas. She is Associate Vice President for Research at the University of Southern Mississippi and the Director of the Thad Cochran Marine Aquaculture Center in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, where I have visited uh, with a great tour that Kelly herself uh, hosted. And so it's just nice to reconnect with you, Kelly. Thank you. It's great to reconnect with you. I look forward to our discussions today. Great. We also have Mr. Bill Michaels, CEO and founder of Michaels Echo Associates and the former director of NOAA's Fisheries Technology Program, where we became close colleagues collaborating on a number of very exciting S&T areas uh, that are advancing NOAA's mission. Bill, thanks for being on the show, my good friend. Uh, thank you, Admiral. 
it's a privilege to be part of this panel and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking to the audience. Right on. Last but definitely not least, we have Lori Steele, the Executive Director of the West Coast Seafood Processors Association, and before that, working for the New England Fishery Management Council. Lori, great to have you on our show. Hey, Tim. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, all right. We'll just sort of get underway here now and uh, talk all about this great topic of seafood. And I'm going to start with Tony Del Ponte. Tony, uh, tell us about the Pacific Seafood Group, and if you could, maybe some of our interactions over the last few years uh, when I first started working at NOAA. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Pacific Seafood, for those who haven't heard of us, we're headquartered out of Portland, Oregon, but we are one of the country's largest seafood producers. And what makes us a little unique is that we engage in every single part of the seafood value chain, from wild harvest to farm, both shellfish and finfish, uh, to processing, where we take those wild harvested or farm products and turn it into what you or I might buy at the grocery store or at a restaurant, as well as uh, important traded sector activity and distribution, both locally and uh, nationally. So we do everything across the gamut, whereas most seafood companies engage in only one or two parts of the supply chain. And that gives us a pretty unique view of the health of the seafood industry and the economic contribution that the industry makes to the country as a whole. Um, Admiral, you and I met a couple years ago when we were first getting started with an initiative to uh, help grow the amount of seafood that we produce domestically. As you mentioned, there's a, over a $16 billion trade deficit and more than 85% of the seafood that we eat in the country is actually imported from other countries. And so in your role at NOAA, I recall one of the first things you did was say, well, can we reverse that? Can we uh, source more of our food locally and employ Americans and eat American seafood products? And we were partnered on that and made some progress um, in, the, in the years that we were working together and hopefully can do more in the future. Well, right. Exactly, Tony. And I remember our meeting and the influence you had on our policy priorities at NOAA that ultimately resulted in a seafood executive order officially called, I think, um, American Seafood Competitiveness and Economic Growth Executive Order, which I hope is turning the uh, corner on the, that seafood trade deficit that you really illuminated for us. And, uh, and, and on the long, on along the lines of aquaculture component of that, uh, Kelly Lucas is an expert in this field, having given me a tour of the, of the Thad Cochran Center and uh, Kelly, tell us about that center and what you're doing in the field of aquaculture, please. Sure. So at um, the Thad Cochran Marine Aquaculture Center, we work with industry, government, and nonprofit organizations to alleviate the bottlenecks that constrain the production of marine species. We're very centrally located um, in the northern Gulf of Mexico um, here in Mississippi, a little inland in Ocean Springs. And the facility consists of 13 buildings that are spread around kind of in a semicircle, if you would, about 100,000 square feet of space dedicated to aquaculture, about 50,000 um, square feet to the culture of animals and live feeds. So we have the ability to um, do replicated experiments um, that are needed for the industry. 
Um, so we use recirculating artificial seawater. Uh, we do have the ability to intake seawater. We have found that the artificial seawater allows us to have um, more biological control um, and to kind of really have that better biosecurity. All of this, of course, is climate controlled and all that. I think um, one of the unique things that we have set up at the Aquaculture Center is um, we do finfish, so marine finfish. Um, really the way we're set up, we could really work on any finfish, but we tend to focus on those species from the Gulf of Mexico. We do oysters, we do shrimp, we do crabs, uh, we do algae, both micro and macro. So it's really a kind of one-stop shop um, that you can find. Uh, and there's very few of those centers around um, the, wor the world, actually. Um, and what we really, really try to do is be a place where industry um, can come and learn, can use our facilities to test things, provide that demonstration capability, which helps the aquaculture industry grow. And so we, we work with everybody kind of across the board to, to do what they need. We don't mind knocking out walls or, or rearranging things in order to um, make, it uh, make those accommodations for industry. Well, I love the, what the work you're doing there, Kelly, and the science of it is just fascinating. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm interested about the, in the science and sort of just to paint the sort of picture. Tony talked about uh, the seafood trade deficit and the seafood production line, if you will. And, you know, a, an important fact to acknowledge is that uh, in our wild-caught fisheries, NOAA does the job of managing those with based on science. And, you know, the wild-caught fisheries around the globe are certainly under pressure. And so through just really that the science is going to allow us to optimize yields, but there's sort of like a, a, a cap, if you will, or a ceiling on how much fish we can catch. And that's where aquaculture comes in. Uh, in terms of sustainably catching fish, where to augment that and help us get around, turn the corner again and with that trade deficit. And so a little bit about science, we're really blessed to have a, a premier scientist and educator, and that's David Kerstetter. And, and so David, um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Nova Southeastern and some of the education efforts that you're, you're involved with. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so as you might have heard from your daughter, uh, we wear a couple of hats in my department down here, uh, both in terms of research and education. Um, so I teach a number of courses here, both at the graduate and undergraduate level, uh, not just an introduction to marine biology, but also your daughter's biology of fishes class coming up, as well as a couple different classes at the graduate level in coastal marine policy and marine fishery science. Uh, one things that I really enjoy about my position in particular is the opportunity to take the research side of what I do, though, uh, back into the classroom. And on the research side, as well as advocacy, you know, I tend to do a lot in collaboration with the students in my lab. So I sit on the HMS advisory panel, highly migratory species, including tunas and swordfish, as well as the U.S. advisory committee for the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. So a lot of the research in my laboratory over the years has worked with the coastal pelagic and the true pelagic fishes like the tunas. And so uh, we've done a lot of work both nationally and internationally in terms of bycatch reduction and trying to make some of these fisheries sustainable. Um, at the same time, we've also seen, and I've been able to share with my students as well, those experiences where we've been frustrated by some of those international management efforts. 
So, you know, being able to combine those two, I think, provides a unique opportunity for the students. Well, I know Laurel has delighted in those, and, he, and she had, tells me that sometimes you even do some field work. You guys get uh, some snorkel gear on, and you get out in the water to t- do some observations. Is, is, that, is that true? We do, indeed. Um, one of the advantages of being at a university in South Florida is that we have wonderful weather year-round, so we're able to avail of ourselves of those opportunities fairly often. I'm going to have to join her on one of those trips. Uh, thank you, David. Now, you talked about sustainable fisheries and certainly the you know, bycatch and some of the issues affecting them. Um, and I, and at, let me go to Lori Steele quickly, not as long as you want, really, Lori, because uh, I love having you here. About a month before I joined NOAA, you had testified in front of the same Senate committee, and it was a subcommittee of that, of that, uh, that I had my confirmation hearing before. And you talked about our fisheries being really the gold standard, I believe, in sustainable fisheries management under the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Could you elaborate a bit on that? And, and also tell us about the West Coast Seafood Processors Association uh, as well. Sure. Thanks. And thanks for, thanks for letting me reminisce back to that, uh, that time I testified. It seems like a lifetime ago now. <laughs> um, but just really generally, um, the West Coast Seafood Processors Association um, represents all of the large um, land-based shoreside processors on the West Coast in Washington, Oregon, and California. Um, we process the majority of Dungeness crab and pink shrimp and ground fish, including sole and rockfish and, and black cod. Pacific hake landed on the West Coast. I hope I'm making you hungry. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> we also process a lot of albacore tuna and salmon. Um, we're American-owned, multi-generational family operations. And in this association, we have companies that range from literally mom and pop operations to companies like Pacific Seafood Group with, um, you know, processing and distribution facilities working throughout the entire supply chain. Um, we provide thousands of year-round jobs in West Coast communities. Um, and as you mentioned, um, with the Magnuson reauthorization, um, you know, one of the things is that's key and critical for us is that our fisheries are sustainable. We have some of the most sustainable and healthy fisheries in the world right here off the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, So when I testified um, and still to this day is we may be seeing another, well, we will be seeing another Magnuson reauthorization one of these days. Um, One of the things that I truly believe is that we need to focus on enhancing the economic successes in our fisheries to match all of the conservation successes we've had. Um, This is going to be a great opportunity to build on the success we've experienced and the lessons that we've learned through the last two Magnuson reauthorizations. And I guess if there's one lesson to be learned from the last two reauthorizations, and this is something I always try to focus on um, when I testify or talk about the Magnuson Act is, uh, you know, it is a, a regional approach has worked really, really well for our fisheries and regional managers really benefit from having flexibility and adaptability when it comes to managing our fisheries. I think we've seen the success and, and hopefully we can build on that and bring the economic successes as well. Oh, I, I know that from experience too at NOAA, Lori, that was, that was terrific. 
And in fact, uh, that regional approach, I think, really is, um, has, is so well proven. And, uh, and I actually have been engaging in the Pacific Islands, and so many of those don't even have fisheries that they manage and they need help. And, and so I, th I think the, the regional management approach under Magnuson is certainly one that we can, uh, you know, sort of in a capacity building sense, share with partners, especially as they're increasingly challenged by China in the Pacific. And there's, there's probably no one who could talk to that better here than uh, my old colleague, former colleague, Bill Michaels, who has more than four decades of experience working in NOAA fisheries. And, and so I'd love to have you, Bill, share some of your perspectives on both uh, sustainable seafood and the capacity building uh, effort for our partners in sharing our best practices. Uh, thank you, Admiral. Um, yeah, I, I, I've had a, a blessed career working with NOAA for the past four decades. Um, uh, the first three decades, I, uh, I did a lot of research out in the Georgia's Bank area off the East Coast. Uh, I began around the time of the Magnuson-Stevens Act uh, in, in the late 70s. Uh, I saw uh, the the impact of the foreign fishing vessels. I've been on foreign fishing vessels where, you know, they can easily catch 20 tons in 30 minutes. And I've seen that 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 fishing pressure and the importance of the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And as Laurie said, that regional approach of, of management. Um, during the, the 1980s, uh, there was quite a learning curve there in terms of improving the science and working with managers and, and our stakeholders, you know, the fishers, and understanding the importance of uh, effective fishing management practices. 1990, that ecosystem approach became increasingly more important uh, it, because we've started seeing changes in the habitat, habitat loss. Uh, we've seen uh, warming due to climate change. And so that ecosystem approach is, it, it really informed us of the complexity of how everything is tied together. And, and where we really are today uh, and, and I just described that revolution in conservation science. But where we are today is the technology rev re revolution. Uh, and as Admiral, as you mentioned, I've had the privilege of working with you with the new NOAA uh, strategic initiatives on emerging science and technology. So having to optimize that technology and NOAA's environmental data enterprise with processing technologies such as uh, artificial intelligence, that is exceptionally important. And it's important not only at the regional level, but the global scale. And given that, um, I think we need to also step up to the plate for building scientific scientific capacity in the data limited regions, the areas where, you know, they could really benefit from our learning curve. All right, Bill, you did some fantastic work at NOAA, and I really want to applaud your leadership. Uh, Bill authored essentially a, a strategic plan and a strategy on artificial intelligence that not only covered down on how we could apply it to fisheries, but really everything from weather forecasting to coral reef conservation and, uh, and, and that was a lot of fun. 
Um, and, the, and now that we look at the challenges that exist across the various areas that I mentioned, like climate change and illegal fishing, uh, really just upping our game and, and through technology and partnerships is, uh, is just more important than ever. And in fact, uh, everyone on this panel, which is great, has uh, extensive partnership experience, whether it be with the private sector or government. And, and let me go to Kelly, because I saw that I saw that really well down on the Gulf Coast. And who, who else do you partner with there, both at USM and uh, and across the region? So, of course, we partner across the region with, you know, all of our research universities um, because none of us can do this alone. So we really try to partner in terms of research with them. We work with our industry partners um, and that is the defense sector a lot here um, for uncrewed systems, as well as working with aquaculture partners um, across across the United States that fly in and even the world that fly in to work. Um, at the Thad Cocker and Marine Aquaculture Center. Um, I think one of the great things that we have been working on um, for the past um, five years is we commissioned an ocean task force in the state of Mississippi back in 2018 that worked really across the coast with all sorts of industries, your economic develop developers, your municipalities, um, defense, uh, science, consultants, Everybody participated, and it was really looking at how does Mississippi um, position, position ourselves to continue to be innovative and be pioneers in the blue economy. And from that report, they produced about nine things that they felt like the Mississippi Gulf Coast really needed to do to capitalize on being located here centrally in the Gulf of Mexico. And so we as a university took ownership of that and started working with all of our partners really to check off all those items um, that the task force created. And we have just um, launched um, last month um, the initiative, if you would, the branding opportunity here on the Gulf Coast called Gulf Blue. Um, and it's going to be bringing big ideas out of the blue. <laughs> um, and so that launch has, has been great and all the work that we did leading up to it. You know, we want to capitalize on the existing world-class um, ocean research capabilities that we have here. We want to advance innovations in, in maritime systems, in aquaculture systems, in ocean plastics, in uh, space systems. You know, we're really looking at Mississippi being the gateway to the Gulf of Mexico for blue technology innovation. And when I say that, I'm speaking from space to the seafloor, um, Tim. So we are, we are really working hard. Um, we have also worked with our Mississippi Development Authority. Um, of course, our congressional delegation, as well as our state delegation, has really taken ownership in this. Um, and we are happy to see those Gulf Blue flags um, flying across the Mississippi Gulf Coast, as well as um, some partners um, that we have in Europe. So we are looking to pr promote the unique qualities um, of the Mississippi Gulf Coast and incubate and develop, you know, sustainable technologies um, that help all of us, you know, whether it's harvest seafood better, um, be better citizens by not, you know, using plastics that are detrimental to the oceans. So there's just so many innovative people out there in products and, and we are looking to attract them here um, and grow them, you know, here in Mississippi. That's terrific. I uh, love hearing that. And I think it's just fascinating how uh, fisheries and 
uh, fishery science have sort of uh, fostered a, an incredible amount of growth in blue tech overall, which you're just representative of, and which I witnessed firsthand again with my colleague Bill uh, working AI uh, at NOAA. And so uh, I, let me go back to David Kerstetter uh, at NOVA Southeastern. And, and so I know you, you instruct on biology and you even talked about some marine policy. Uh, to what extent do you cover these technologies and, and how they, they uh, lead to new discovery in your, in your coursework and your engagement uh, at, at NOVA? We actually cover uh, quite a few of those topics in my various courses, and in part because my laboratory and I have done a lot of research in exactly those sort of collaborative technology developments that you were talking about with your other panelists. Uh, you think back to the uh, early 2000s and the big push for circle hooks, for example, in the pelagic longline fisheries. That technology was really trialed the pioneering efforts here in the United States in collaboration with the U.S. Pelagic Longline Fleet. And now we have countries like Canada and Brazil in particular that have mandated those bycatch reduction and bycatch mortality reduction technologies for their own fisheries. So, you know, I think one of the things that tends to get lost in some of these discussions is the way that NOAA, through the fishery service and programs like a cooperative research program, and the bycatch reduction engineering program have really fostered the development of a lot of these bycatch uh, reduction technologies and ultimately fostered that sustainability research themselves. So again, these are topics that I love bringing back to my classes and you know, seeing the, the gears work in the heads of these students as they try to think in themselves uh, how to reduce bycatch and some of these other problems is really kind of fascinating to watch as an educator. Oh, that's so good, David. Th thank you. I I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, it's interesting in advancing technology. There's there's so many, again, that we can go back to partnerships because it's very collaborative. There's industry types that are uh, providing new innovation. And of course, there's folks who have to implement it like at NOAA and, and the federal or state level regulators. And of course, then there's the, the academia folks like you who are uh, all working together and, and so on this topic of collaboration, um, I, I want to go to Lori Steele. And Lori has a fascinating um, background because before her work on the West Coast with the Seafood Processors Association, she had nearly 20 decades with the New England Fisheries Management Council. And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how maybe the West and the East Coast differ or maybe are the same in terms of the way uh, they're collaborative in the nature of moving fisheries forward, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, Lori? Sure. Um, yeah, and it was two decades, not 20. It felt like 20. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I meant 20 years. But no, that's, I'm just, that's how it felt. Um, no, it, I uh, <laughs> sure. spent 18 years working um, on the New England Fishery Management Council staff. Um, I started in late 1995, um, so I was literally in the trenches through both of the two, the two Magnuson Act reauthorizations. We've had the first in 1996 and then the second in 2006. Um, I spent much of those 18 years uh, developing um, and implementing or developing and writing um, the fishery management plans and the amendments to, to bring everything into consistency with the Magnuson Act. And I certainly... I uh, got a really, really in-depth perspective of the industry on the West Coast, I'm sorry, on the East Coast, 
before I moved here to the West Coast and started working for the industry. Um, I always wanted to work for the industry, so it, it certainly was, uh, you know, 18 long years working for the council, but obviously very important and, and very interesting work. Um, it has been interesting to compare the East Coast and the West Coast fisheries. Um, they're, I think, quite different in terms of structure, um, operational aspects, for sure, management approaches, and definitely community culture. Um, the culture in New England is different than the culture in the West Coast, is different than the culture in the Southeast, which is why the regional approach works so well. Um, but one thing is, you know, from my experience, um, I think it's become clear that we all face really similar conservation um, and management, conservation needs and management challenges. Um, so I really do think, uh, you know, that it's all kind of laid out in National Standard 1 of the Magnuson Act, um, which is, you know, the ultimate challenge for fishery managers um, and for the industry um, to achieve sustainability in terms of both the biology and the health of our resources, as well as the economy and the well-being of our fishing communities. Um, this is the fundamental goal of the Magnuson Act. This is the council's charge, and it's not a dichotomy. It, they aren't polar opposites. They're both uh, part of a, a recipe for, for long-term success for our fishing industry. Well, I appreciate that, Lori. It is a, a bigger picture, a national effort, if you will, and uniting around the common challenges certainly um, will help us succeed and, and address them. And actually, kind of going into recent terms, I wanted to go to Tony. And Tony, I just saw an article recently about, and here I'll even just quote the headline, seafood prices soar amid supply chain issues and worker shortage. Uh, so has this pandemic had a, a, you know, what's been the impact on, on at least Pacific seafood and maybe the industry writ large? Oh, absolutely. I think the pandemic has affected every industry, so we're not unique. Um, the impacts that it have had, the pandemic has not been with us for over a year and a half, right? And so the impacts have changed. Initially, uh, when it first got going, we saw the public health mandates and the shutdown of the food service sector. Well, 70% of U.S. seafood consumption takes place in the food service sector, restaurants. Uh, so that was a, a significant impact overnight. But we saw over the course of the rest of the year in 2020, that trend um, or that immediate impact reverse somewhat. Restaurants reopened. Uh, people started eating actually more seafood at home. So that was a hugely positive development. More healthy proteins being cooked at home. 2021, uh, we continue to see lingering impacts. The biggest impacts right now are on um, those two that you highlighted in that article you read. The supply chain internationally, a lot of U.S. product, even though we do have a trade deficit overall, is exported. Um, and we're having significant challenges uh, sourcing containers for uh, ocean-carried vessels. Um, there was a dry ice issue briefly, uh, which impacted our ability to bring direct-to-consumer type products in the, the retail space. Um, we're having backlogs at some of the ports. So if you can get a container in, it takes a while to unload them. And all of those are, are business challenges that aren't unique to seafood, but we're certainly seeing them in the seafood sector. The labor side uh, is a significant challenge to our domestic production and our domestic sales. On the one hand, um, 
the wild harvest fishermen have a mostly dedicated workforce, a lot of family owned companies uh, with dedicated crews, but they do supplement those some, from time to time with additional workers and they're having a heck of a time finding people. Um, in our processing plants, we have a similar problem where we will hire uh, typically for seasonal production. You have a large whiting season or a large shrimp season or a Dungeness crab season as Lori was talking about. And those jobs are increasingly difficult to fill as uh, coastal communities become more tourism focused uh, and less so uh, year round uh, communities with employment. So that creates a challenge, but we're also seeing the same labor challenges down the, uh, down the line where our customers, the restaurants are having trouble uh, staffing as well. I'm sure we will bounce out of this as life reverts back to normal, but in the meantime, we are, we are seeing some business challenges. Wow. That's really, uh, that's really uh, insightful. I don't think many people understand how complex uh, the industry is with all the different components you mentioned. And I mean, I think whenever someone you know buys a, a, a seafood item in a restaurant or like you said, cooks something at home, there's there's this large, you know, industry behind it with so many uh, parts and even one of those can affect downstream the others. So uh, interesting. Very interesting. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. I, I wanted to go back to Lori on this. And, you know, um, when you when you look at those challenges, I also know, you know, maybe we could look at the past uh, successes as maybe, um, you know, lessons we can draw from. And you talked about the West Coast groundfish. And I remember at NOAA, we, we thought the West Coast groundfish were a success story because they were, you know, historically depleted and overfished and they've bounced back. And now I think our, our gener are really uh, a productive success story. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe what lessons we might draw from that? Sure. Um, and you are correct. Um, from a conservation perspective, our West Coast groundfish fishery is a tremendous success story. Um, we have fully rebuilt um, almost all of our groundfish stocks out here. I believe there might only be one or two that um, are still in a rebuilding program at this time. Um, and just comparatively from the East Coast to the West Coast, it's funny. I mean, I worked on uh, the New England ground fish fishery, which I thought was, you know, is a very complicated and, and complex fishery. Um, but it's nothing compared to the West Coast ground fish fishery. There are so many stocks of ground fish, um, so many different species that it's just a, a management uh, mind boggler when you look at it, you know, relative to the requirements of the Magnuson Act. Um, so uh, the council out here and the industry has done a fantastic job um, and the industry has made enormous sacrifices to rebuild this, these stocks. Um, we, because of the management structure, you know, it's, it's under a catch share program now and, and managed through individual fishing quotas. Um, which gets very difficult when you're when you're talking about you know individual fishing quotas for 35 plus species or stocks of fish. Um, it's uh, I think we're a little bit we're quite a bit hindered now in terms of being able to reap the economic gains you know from the sacrifices that we've made. Um, we're trying to untangle ourselves now from some of the management complexities and the unintended consequences of the catch share program. 
Um, and it's taken a really long time. I mean, I've been out here for six years and we are still struggling to, um, you know, lift some of the input regulations that were on this fishery before we transitioned to a catch share program. Um, you know, there were a lot of, of benefits, economic benefits that were um, projected and, and you know, promised to the industry when uh, the catch share program was implemented. And while we have seen those conservation gains, um, we are not, we're not there yet with the economic gains. Um, so we're still trying to work our way through that process. It's just, uh, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah. That, you know, thanks for, uh, thanks for educating me on that. I wasn't quite so aware of the economic impacts had not followed yet. Uh, of course, the conservation folks were really proud to, uh, proclaim their successes. So interesting, two sides of the coin, and, and ultimately we do want win-win outcomes. Uh, let me go back to Kelly, because I, and I, I don't know if you can comment on this, but I'll, I'm always just so fascinated by, again, the regional nature and the on the wide variety of different stocks. And I mean, fisheries, so when I, quick background. When I came to NOAA, I had a deep history and involvement in all things oceans and atmospheric science. So I knew basically most of what NOAA did, but the one area I didn't was fish. And I'll tell you, fish are complicated. Fisheries management is very uh, involved. <laughs> and so I got to know that firsthand. And so talking about West Coast groundfish, for one, Kelly, red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico was gigantic. I, mean, I can't tell you how many hours I put towards that. Uh, do you know much about how the, the, you know, the regulations changed and shifted over the last few years and if they were the economic conservation benefits have, have that has that played out or are you aware of that i would say it's still playing out um and, and to your point um i don't know that fisheries comp uh, that fisheries management um is as complicated as the fact that it's people management right like fish don't know they're being fish don't know they're being managed right they don't know a geographic boundary they didn't know they crossed into a different state or moved to a different reef um so it's, it's really the people management aspect of it and managing people's expectations and um you know being able to be sure that the science and what people are seeing when they're on the water or not seeing when they're on the water, right, marry together. Um, and red snapper is one of the most studied fish um, in the U.S., I would imagine, but definitely in the Gulf of Mexico. And so it, it is uh, recreationally um, challenging and commercially challenging. Um, we are one of the few areas um, here in the United States where recreational fishing is probably much larger um, than some of the commercial fishing that takes place. And so, you know, once you get to a point where you're, you're splitting between commercial and recreational, and then even further between those who are on their individual boats um, and those who are really trying to give people an opportunity to get on the water via charters, um, every, everybody wants to catch red snapper. Right, they're a fun fish to catch. They're great to eat. Um, they make for great opportunities. And so, we've really had to look at it on a state by state approach and realize that what works great for the state of Mississippi or the state of Florida, in terms of fishing seasons um, and all that, may not work for Texas. Um, you know, there are times of the year in Texas um, when the winds are just too high for people to get offshore. And we weren't marrying that up across the Gulf. When you have one Gulf-wide season. Um, you're not really taking into account um, geography and when people want to fish. So really having the states um, come together and figure out a way to divide it up 
so that they're individual, you know, recreational fishermen and charter boat fishermen could capitalize on the opportunities to fish for red snapper um, at the times of the year when it made sense for them, and that our commercial fishery could continue to capitalize year-round um, through the catch share program. Um, like Lori mentioned, um, it's not perfect, right? And we've recognized that some of the regulatory burdens that made it, made us successful um, in, in changing um, red snapper from overfished and undergoing overfishing to being very sustainably managed um, and having high population counts now, we're untangling that too, um, just like Lori said. And, you know, I think that's part of what you mentioned in the the seafood executive order, right? Start looking at those regulations that um, are inhibiting you from being successful and being sustainable um, just because you made it you made it a little more complicated and it worked at the time, um, but now you may have to undo it in some fashion that works. And, and everybody's gonna have to recognize there's a little bit of growing pains with untangling um, those multiple regulations. Um, but hopefully we get to it in a manner where either most everybody can be happy or most everybody can be equally unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you characterized that perfectly. It, it is people management when it comes down to fisheries. And, uh, but I, I thought that, that was an important priority for us. We knew that we needed to modernize and uh, fisheries regulations. And they're so, they're so dynamic that the, the ecosystem and, and then the economic elements that, that, they, that, that's necessary. And so keeping regulations current and through either deregulation or updating them is, uh, is critical. Well, you know, one of the aspects we haven't, D David Kerstetter touched on um, in terms of highly migratory species was international partnerships, relationships. And, uh, and, and Bill Michaels, my former colleague at NOAA, uh, has a lot of experience here. One of the areas, he, or one of the countries he worked closely with and was even a, um, uh, you're going to have to tell us exactly your status there, if you were working with the embassy or not, Bill, but you worked with Norway. And I, and Norway, you know, these people have been fishing for a long time and they, they're quite good at what they do. And I'm curious if you have, Bill, any um, lessons learned from your experience in Norway. Can you tell us about your, your experience and what you saw? Uh, yes, thank you, Admiral. Uh, I, I have had the privilege to work with many countries over the years. Uh, and uh, the Norwegians in particular uh, are exceptionally good with technologies. And given that that's one of my specialties, um, you know, I, I have worked closely uh, with the Norwegians. Uh, I had a recent assignment with a U.S. embassy in Norway and, uh, you know, uh, participated on their uh, research crews and, and um you know, convened a uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence workshop with them. Uh, I think the important footnote here with working with other countries is the importance of partnership. Uh, we've talked a lot about the importance of, you know, the partnership between stakeholders and scientists and managers at the regional level, exceptionally important. But today, we are dealing with 
the changes in the ocean system on a global scale. And uh, as Kelly mentioned and, and Laurie has mentioned, you know, the, the fish, they have tails. They don't understand the geopolitical jurisdictions. Uh, another area that I've worked in is the Caribbean with the Latin American Caribbean countries where there are 42 geopolitical jurisdictions in the Caribbean. And the reality is some of those countries, such as the Cayman Islands, have healthy spawning aggregations of grouper. And, you know, those spawning aggregations could benefit other regions, including the Gulf of Mexico. And so therefore, you know, we really need to not only, you know, work collaboratively within the region, but across regions, across global scales with our, our, our other partners. And this is also very true in the data limited regions. So I have actually spent time um, with training workshops and mentoring our next generation of uh, our professionals, our next generation of scientists who are going to be working on a global scale and building partnerships across country. Uh, so you know, I, I think that's a really important message to keep in mind as we're addressing climate change, warming temperatures, and shifting populations. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for, for that opportunity to bring that up. Oh, very good, Bill. In fact, uh, I, I'll go back to your experiences with spawner, uh, grouper spawning later. There's a good story there. I've seen the video, <laughs> but um, on this international partnerships uh, topic, and uh, I wanted to go up to Tony again. And uh, one of the things I remember that was kind of uh, just interesting was that on the West Coast, um, there was a little bit of it, it, there's a little bit of tension with Canada because you know, like Bill mentioned, the fish don't know geopolitical boundaries, and Kelly mentioned this too. And so it there's a there's a you know, we, I know we work and there's several international councils to, to set uh, catch limits. And um, sometimes it's not the two sides uh, don't always agree. And I, I don't know if you have experience here, Tony, but uh, as a Pacific Seafood Group um, uh, lead here, do, do you have, do you work internationally with Canada on um, how to, to work together at all or, uh, or not? No, absolutely, Admiral. In fact, we actually have uh, several locations in Canada, so uh, we participate as well up in their fisheries. The Canadian system is it's very different uh, than the U.S. model. There's probably some examples um, that we can both learn from on, on both of the sides. One example where the two countries do work together cooperatively is on management of uh, whiting, Pacific whiting or hake. There is a cooperative uh, organization, a group that gets together every year and allocates um, catch between the two countries. As, as you mentioned, you know, fish don't know geographic borders. For the most part, uh, Canada is a terrific partner um, and great to work with. We've got a, a terrific working relationship with them. Hey, thanks, Tony. That's great. If I could go back to David Kerstetter at NOVA. You're the one you brought up highly migratory species. And so do you have any joint projects or, or, or research efforts in now or in the past uh, with, with partners, um, international partners? Oh, thank you. Yes, absolutely. You know, I was kind of reminded during Kelly's presentation about uh, the line from Shrek where Donkey says, you know, it has layers like an onion. 
And in a way that describes a lot of HMS management, which is done at an ocean basin scale. So you have overlapping state level, federal level, and then international level management. So it tends to make it pretty complicated. Uh, but like Bill and a couple of the other panelists, we've engaged in a number of similar sort of collaborations uh, directly on a country to country level, as well as those uh, less officially, but on a scientist to scientist basis. So we just did a project two years ago down in Grenada in the Southeast Caribbean, where we were looking at the efficacy of circle hooks again for bycatch mortality reduction with their coastal pelagic longline fishery. Uh, we found some good things. We hope to get that publication out soon. But it is complicated in the sense that for a lot of these countries, especially some of your, what used to be termed developing states, you have some conflicting uh, motivations between, you know, do they pay the uh, membership fees and responsibilities to join some of these regional fisheries organizations, whether it's ICAT or the Western and Central Caribbean, WCAFSI, a new RFMO that's coming online. Uh, and then there are the obligations to do research and reporting. And so it's a, a big financial burden that I think is often underappreciated with a lot of these developing states. That all said, you know, I, I strongly believe in the power of these collaborations uh, to get this technology and to get these uh, ideas across for this idea of sustainable fisheries and making our fisheries much more friendly towards bycatch uh, and ultimately for economic profitability. You know, if there's one take home that I would have to suggest in having done all of these collaborations in the very fisheries around the world, it would be to not rely necessarily on this almost pie in the sky idea of reducing bycatch for the sake of reducing bycatch. It's a very stick dominated approach. What tends to work better on a country by country basis, in my experience, has been a more carrot based approach where you, if you take this technology and can demonstrate that it's easier to fish or they'll make more money, then the fishers will adopt it voluntarily. And so I think we need to kind of frame some of our research efforts more in, in that sort of carrot approach than the traditional stick approach for management at the international level. That's that's great. How you know? And actually, at NOAA in the last four years, that was very much our approach. And we didn't want to regulate, over-regulate. We wanted to incentivize, and we thought the technology offer uh, opportunity in that area uh, to increase efficiency as well as. Uh, uh, promote conservation. And so uh, very reassured to hear that from an academic expert such as yourself. Uh, well, there's a lot of great territory to cover here. And it's almost like I don't know where to go because uh, this is such a complex and interesting multifaceted area. So I'm going to start getting a little interesting because I want to go back to my friend, Bill. Anything about Bill Michaels uh, from formerly with NOAA uh, Science and Technology, NOAA Fisheries, is his uh, direct experience. So Bill had referenced uh, uh, grouper spawning in the uh, um, in the Caribbean. And uh, Bill is also an, a very accomplished underwater photographer and videographer. And I have seen firsthand videos of his from uh, whale calving in the Dominican Republic and the, the grouper spawning in the Caribbean. And I don't know what else, a whole lot of neat things. And so Bill, Tell us just a little bit about what you're trying to do with your underwater photography. I mean, is it is it an effort to promote conservation? You know, many of us were inspired 
by Jacques Cousteau's 1966-1977 underwater television series. That, that was just fascinating for the public to see what's under the water. And, you know, as, as your daughter, who is going to school and interested in improving uh, communications uh, and the environmental topics, I think Noah and, and the community as a whole can really, imp- they really need to improve communications on the value of our oceans. I mean, let's face it. 90% of the life of the, ocean, of, of the planet is in the ocean. I mean, 50% of the air we breathe is from the ocean. And, you know, the ocean is our, here, here's the way to look at it. At a regional basis, we see fish. The ocean divides us. But the reality is the ocean is the lifeblood of the planet. And, and we are all connected right down to, you know, national security, to uh, our future foods. And so given that, um, I have devoted quite a bit of my time to underwater photography and videography. I, I hope that I am able to inspire people from some of these, uh, you know, expeditions. Um and I must also say that my career was inspired by Jacques Cousteau's words. And he said, for most of the history, man has had to fight nature to survive. In this century, he is beginning to realize in order to survive, we must protect it. And, you know, so I, I, I have to give a lot of credit to Jacques Cousteau for the inspiration I got as a child and where I am today. Well, that's nice to hear, and I think uh, we sh- we all share that with you to some extent, Bill. And uh, what wh- can we find your videos uh, on YouTube? I believe we can, can't we? Yeah, you can do a search for William Michaels, and you'll see some of my videos. Um, uh, there's one I, that's called Shark Curiosity, focused on the Bahamas and their efforts in their shark conservation. Uh, you know that that was uh, that actually won a documentary award um you know so the coral triangle the abandoned sea off indonesia so you know there's some interesting videos there oh, i know and i just saw your one off bimini uh with hammerhead sharks and i'm going to be diving there in two weeks uh with All reef right. tip with reef tip sharks so really neat well that's that's nice and that's inspirational and and and, and going back to to david uh, that's what you have done too. With, I know my daughter and her fellow classmates, and I'm sure that next generation aspect of inspiring others to conserve and protect the ocean is a, is a message you bring. I, am I correct in that? I think I, I've listened to my daughter and, I, and that's what I gather. Oh, absolutely. You know, inspiring that next generation uh, to solve some of these problems is going to be key. Um, and so we can do that uh, through a number of ways, you know, talking about our research and getting them thinking about potential venues for their own exploration, I think is a part of that. Um, But I think it's also important to have students starting to think about things in larger contexts. You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, changes going on at the global level that are going to require some really innovative solutions. Tackling global climate change is not going to be a domestic or a local issue. 
so inspiring them for some of these concepts early, I think is going to be important. Well, thank you for what you do. Uh, I know it's affected my family in a positive way. And, uh, and I, I really appreciate that, David. And so actually you hit on something I think is pretty significant. And that, uh, that is there's this science aspect, uh, but then there's a larger management and policy aspect of fisheries. And, and that's where folks like Tony and the Pacific Seafood Group come in. As I said, Tony really influenced us in a very positive way in our, our seafood and ocean policy priorities. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you do offer any other thoughts uh, in that area, Tony. Oh, gosh, I've always got thoughts. Um, <laughs> no, the, uh, you made some tremendous progress in your time with NOAA, which we're very appreciative of. And the science is part of the beauty of uh, our system here in the United States, where we manage based both off conservation and economic goals. Uh, so science comes into play in a very, very significant way in terms of stock surveys and how are these various species doing? Um, are the wild fishery impacts uh, having negative or positive impact? What do we need to do to adjust? And so the, the, from the policy side, make sure, making sure that NOAA is adequately equipped to conduct those surveys. There's tremendous opportunities in terms of partnerships because there's already fishing vessels on the water every single day. Can we do science or can we partner with those private vessels to improve our science and get more realistic, uh, better information faster? There's some really cool uh, stuff going on in terms of gear types with new net devices and excluder devices to avoid bycatch uh, in the shrimp fishery, for example, in the West Coast cold water shrimp. They've turned the orientation of the net just 90 degrees and in doing so had much more success in excluding baby shrimp. Um, so we're going after the target species after it's fully matured and had an opportunity to to lay their eggs so we're protecting the resource going forward there's some really cool stuff going on with uh, pinger devices that can attach to crab pots and help exclude interactions from uh, humpback whales and other protected species so the future uh, on the science front is very very bright and we appreciate the leadership of some of the academic folks, as well as the governmental partners on the call that have helped lead efforts in that, that area. We're, we're excited for what the future of wild fisheries is. And we're even more excited about implementation of new technological uh, opportunities on the farming front. Because as you mentioned at the, at the start of this, populations are growing, populations need to eat. Seafood is among the healthiest proteins on the planet. It's also one of the most, uh, environmentally and economically efficient forms to produce. So there's a huge opportunity in terms of farming more seafood product. It's the fastest growing form of food production worldwide. The US hasn't quite caught up on that, but we're driving the technological advances that are allowing the rest of the world to farm more of their products. So we're, we're very excited about opportunities there as well. Yeah, very interesting. It, going first off to what you talked about with some of the neat science and technology developments, one of the things we really pushed at NOAA was exactly what you said, and that is partnering with commercial fishermen because they had a lot of great, great data that we couldn't collect. And so that that's moving forward, I know, especially in Alaska. The other thing, I think, uh, in terms of different technologies that really proved itself well uh, was during the pandemic last year when our ships were pierside for about six months, the NOAA survey ships. And uh, a, a kind of critical moment came when we needed to get 
data uh, from the Alaska Pollock fishery, which I believe is the largest by value in the nation. And when our ship couldn't get up there and do it. So we outfitted several uncrewed surface vessels, drones, that we had tested with prior. And they were able to collect the same quality and type of data, acoustic data, on the Pollock fishery that allowed the uh, North Pacific Fisheries Management Council to set appropriate catch limits. Had they not done that or had that data, they would have been more conservative. And the net result of that technology was to ensure uh, to to enable Alaska fishermen to catch and earn $100 million of Pollock that they would not have otherwise. So that was a $100 million technology effort. And then when you think those little drones don't cost that much to operate, but a survey ship costs about $35,000 a day, then you know th the technology has proven itself quite well in that one case. Now, going back to farming, uh, really that's where Kelly's expertise comes into play so well. And uh, I didn't know if you had anything else you wanted to share uh, with us about aquaculture, either in the Gulf or uh, worldwide. Yes, I, I'm, I'm happy that Tony um, touched on a little bit of that, but you're, you're right. Um, our wild capture fisheries have been stagnant since about the late 1980s. So any of the growth you're seeing um, in seafood has come from aquaculture. And certainly one of the benefits of um, being here in the United States is we already have the environmental regulations in place um, that can help us do aquaculture in a way that our citizens demand, right? Safe, um, sustainable, um, healthy seafood. And so we really do need to catch up on the production side. Um, we, need, we need aquaculture in the United States for food security. It just has to happen. And so one of the things we are looking at is making sure we find ways to engage people and get them get their business going, whether they want to do recirculating aquaculture on land or whether they want to be near shore and offshore waters. And some of the work that's been going on for the past um, five or so years is really looking at a way to do um, aquaculture, offshore aquaculture in federal waters. Um, I've been working with a private partner, Mana Fish Farms, um, since 2018 on permitting a fin fish farm in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we probably have already spent somewhere in the upwards of $600,000, $750,000, you know, in just the data that needs to be collected, uh, bathymetry, um, all the sensors, all the environmental aspects that go into it. And we haven't even submitted the permit application. Um, we are working well with all the federal agencies, you know, in that process. Um, and we do intend to submit this uh, early fall and getting all the permits underway. And then that process will kick off even longer, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take another year, two years before there's a permanent hand. And that's really hard for companies um, who have already spent that much upfront money. Um, there's no maybe return coming in on product unless they're engaged in other business opportunities, which the majority of them are. Um, but there also isn't that certainty right, that that permit's going to happen and they're going to be able to operate. And so they're out all of those resources. Um, so some of what's going on with these aquaculture opportunity areas, um, looking at ways to, to maybe pre-permit those areas, if you would, or at least do the environmental, um, EI, the EIS that goes along with it, right, reduce the barriers to entry. Um, let us show you that we can do this in a, in a safe, sustainable manner um, and that we can follow all those environmental 
processes, you know, that are already in place to make sure we are doing it right. Um, we just have to engage in the production side and not just exporting our technology so that we can import product. Very good points. And yes, that the aqua, aquaculture opportunity areas was a big priority of ours that I'm very glad is continuing in this administration, Kelly. Um, thank you. So this has been very interesting. Uh, we were kind of going back and forth between opportunities and challenges, and that's just the dynamic nature of fisheries and sustainable seafood. And I guess my last question before I, I go to final thoughts is going to be with Lori Steele. And uh, Lori, one of the big challenges for fisheries right now and opportunities the administration sees for addressing climate change is offshore wind farms. And I know that that's having many commercial fishermen are, are concerned. And I, I'd love to know your thoughts as an expert and having experience both on the West Coast and uh, the East Coast on uh, where, where the nation is moving forward in offshore wind farms and re with regards to commercial fishing. Sure. Well, thanks for bringing that up. It is becoming, uh, you know, a, a very significant issue. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, um, under our current administration, we have an executive order about tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. And President Biden has um, identified a goal of, um, you know, doubling our offshore wind. And uh, I think it's 30 gigawatts by 2030. Um, and here we are moving into 2022 pretty soon. 2030 is really not that far away. Um, and, you know, based on what we've seen on the East Coast with the offshore wind development process, I, th I think it's fair to say that we're all very concerned um, about how, uh, how quickly things are going to move, you know, and what process we're going to use to get from here to where uh, the administration would like to see us by 2030. Um, this industry, the fishing industry, is used to sharing the ocean. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um, and we just need to make sure that we have a seat at the table up front. You know, I don't think we've seen that happen on the East Coast when it comes to efforts to uh, get offshore wind uh, developed um, off the East Coast. And, you know, it's managed uh, differently. Uh, offshore wind um, development is managed through the Department of Interior, through BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Environment Management. Thank you, energy management. Um, we are managed in fisheries under the Department of Commerce. And um, I think we are used to working in a <clears throat> transparent uh, stakeholder-based process that relies on science. Um, I don't think we've seen that on the East Coast and, and what we're seeing develop here on the West Coast in terms of how offshore wind is moving forward. Um, so we really wanna try to engage in a meaningful way. Um, just as a quick example, you know, you know, when we develop fishery management plans, we consider a range of alternatives and we get public input and do a lot of analysis and we base our decisions on the best available science. Um, and what we're seeing with offshore wind development is um, uh, a, a company will go to BOEM and they will pick a site. And then from there, we will start looking at potential impacts. But once the site is picked, the train has sort of left the station and it's very difficult to change the siting once that happens. So we really wanna see a much more transparent public process, the one that we're used to when it comes to fisheries. Very good point, uh, Lori. And, and really that's a, a purpose of this podcast is to 
kind of raise awareness of the different views and interests and hopefully encourage more collaboration. So I'm very glad you raised that uh, point, a very important one, and it will be very significant with respect to fisheries, conservation, and, and a mixed use of our, our ocean spaces. Well, unfortunately, we're about at time. And so let me just ask everybody to, if you have any final thoughts and if you eat seafood, and I'm sure you all do, uh, t- tell us up front what your favorite dish is. And I'll go to Tony Del Ponte first. Sure. Thanks, Admiral. I guess if I had to pick a sa- favorite seafood um, as a West Coast born and raised guy, I'd, I'd be remiss if I did not say Dungeness Crab, uh, which is absolutely Good choice. Um, final thoughts. I just would like to thank you uh, for your leadership and effort both in the government and without in this uh, podcast and, and driving the importance of the blue economy. And my one final thought on that is to bear in mind that the seafood industry is a lot broader than just the actual food production. Um, and that trend alone, you look at NOAA data, there's more than 1.75 million jobs and more than $245 billion in sales every year. But Seafood as a whole contributes in terms of multiplier multiplier effects in really cool ways, particularly in rural coastal communities where seafood continues to be the largest contributor to net earnings in a lot of these towns. And it attracts tourism, uh, which is the second largest contributor to net earnings in a lot of these places. People want to go and see working waterfronts and fishermen and fish being landed and processed and have fresh uh, seafood products, and that attracts them to go to these uh, coastal areas. And then it's even beyond uh, coastal towns in terms of farming production and the work that uh, Dr. Lucas is doing. You're seeing new aquaculture feeds that are using soy products that are grown in the American heartland. So seafood and fish, uh, whether it's wild or farm, is really helping drive economic advancement across the entire country and particularly in a lot of our rural areas. There's tremendous opportunity for us as a country uh, to grow our economy, to provide new um, jobs, as well as provide healthy, sustainable protein sources. Very well said, Tony. Thanks so much for your expert uh, advice and contributions. Uh, Let's go to Dr. Kelly Lucas at University of Southern Mississippi. Well, I don't know that I can pick just one seafood, right? So healthy, local, safe, sustainable seafood. Although I did, um, I did get a text this morning that said, "Hey, don't have stuffed uh, crab stuffed flounder for lunch because that's for dinner." So that keeps playing in my mind that when I get through this day, that I know tonight I am having um, blue crab stuffed uh, flounder. So I'm excited about that. Um, I I think my big takeaways um, somewhere just kind of adding upon what Tony said, though, is, you know, we in America, we like to we like to get to know our farmers or get to know our fishermen and know where the product's coming from. And so it's great, you know, in terms of when you're in these areas, right, these coastal areas or wherever, you know, get to know a farmer, get to know a fisherman, um, get to learn a little bit about um, your product and the and the people behind it and, and the process behind it. Uh, it's, a really, it's a really great story um, and there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and I know one of the things we're working on now is not just you know, training the workforce to engage in aquaculture, but training um, 
people and getting them excited about continuing to be commercial fishermen, right? None of us can do it alone. And we really do need those commercial fishermen. And we're seeing seeing them age out of the industry and not seeing a lot of um, newcomers, you know, coming up wanting to um, be commercial fishermen. And so we, you know, we definitely want to work with them too, to engage that workforce and, and promote the industry, whether it's the wild capture fisheries or aquaculture, you know, to engage in producing, you know, for us, this healthy, local, safe, sustainable seafood. Um, so, you know, ask the questions, uh, get to know a fisherman or a farmer. Oh, that's such a good point, Kelly. You know, I'm sitting here on my, I'm looking out the window on my, uh, from my house right on the western shore of the Chesapeake. And every morning in the summer, we see the watermen come in and throw their crab pots over and pick them up. And, and, uh, and we go out, we've gone out with a few of them uh, to catch striped bass or rockfish. And I, I think that was just an incredibly good point, uh, promoting this great way of living and livelihood uh, on America's coasts. And so, and by the way, uh, I'd like to come over for dinner tonight. If that's okay with you, I'll see if I'll see if he can spare a plate. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, all right, let's can, let's wrap up also with uh, Dr. David Kerstetter at Nova Southeastern. Uh, thank you very much, and I've really enjoyed being part of this panel. Thank you so much for the invitation. You know, I, as you know, Laura and Tony were saying, I I think that it's easy to lose sight of. Competing resource objectives, and in that conflict, lose sight of the fact that it's important for the U.S. to have a commercial fishery uh, for a number of different species, and it's going to be a continuing challenge, not just in the rural areas, but in particular the urbanizing areas like South Florida or Baltimore around the Chesapeake, where you've got increased competition and other infrastructure. Uh, that are going to be, I think, more acute as time goes on. Uh, we not only have that important economic security that comes from having our own commercial fisheries, but uh, as I mentioned before with my own research, we have a lot of bycatch reduction technologies and other sustainable fisheries techniques that were developed in U.S. fisheries. So there's an important testbed platform aspect to commercial fisheries that is often also underappreciated. So... Just to wrap it up, uh, even though I've lived now in South Florida for 15 years and my wife for 20, uh, we are children of the Chesapeake. Uh, I'm from Virginia and my wife is from Baltimore. And so it would be remiss for me to not claim my favorite seafood as blue crabs and oysters. Aha, uh -huh. you and I both. I love to hear that. Thank you so much, David. And uh, again, thanks so much for the just great role model you are for my daughter and all the students at Nova Southeastern. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Uh, how about uh, Lori Steele? Any uh, uh, final thoughts for us? Well, sure. And what a great segue for me in terms of thinking about my favorite seafood. Um, I'm, I mean, I can't name just one, but I grew up in Virginia Beach and I grew up uh, eating Chesapeake Bay blue crab and it was certainly my favorite. Um, then I moved to New England and loved the lobster. And now here on the West Coast, I can't get enough Dungeness crab. So I guess my favorite would be crustaceans, <laughs> uh, Yay, crabs okay. in general. Um, but thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's been really interesting. Um, and I, in terms of my final thoughts, I did just want to thank Bill for reminding me of my inspiration, which was that 1966 to 77 Jacques Cousteau underwater series. Um, that was that was 
me. I was born in 1974. And I was completely captivated. Um, and I, by the time I was four years old, I was telling my parents I was going to be a marine biologist. And, uh, you know, that really, Jacques Cousteau inspired me to devote my life and my career to the ocean and fisheries. And my career has allowed me to gain um, a lot of experience working in all aspects of the fisheries management process. Um, but I think most important, it's really given me a deep understanding and respect for those who work in the seafood industry. Um, and I really, truly believe that our industry, from the fishermen to the processors to the fishing communities, uh, represent true environmentalism. We are the environmentalists. We There is no one who cares more um, and no one who depends more on the future and sustainability of our marine resources than those who make their livelihoods from the ocean. Um, the seafood industry understands sustainability and they understand that sustainability is the key to long-term success. Um, I respect the work ethic of the industry, the ingenuity, um, the resiliency, the adaptability, and the knowledge that this industry brings to the table. And I am incredibly proud to work for this industry. And I am inspired by the industry every day. Um, so thank you to all of you for the hard work that you do. And thanks for having me. Very nice there, Lori. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, but I'll, I'll raise to you and the others. Uh, so I've had several episodes on different topics. And what I'm finding, and I think I just love and appreciate, is each of these areas of the blue economy will claim that they're the environmentalists or the leading environmentalists. And I, I have, was a tourism and recreation, for example. The surfers will tell you they're the number one ocean conservationist. And then I had this great coral reef uh, show and the divers will tell you that they're the number one conservationist. So uh, I think I'm, I have a running theme here. I think everybody who touches the ocean wants to protect and preserve it. And that's a, that is a wonderful thing. And so uh, last but not least, my good friend, former colleague at NOAA, Bill Michaels. Uh, any final thoughts for us, Bill? Oh, my God. Uh, first, I'm hungry when mentioned crab. Everybody's mentioning crab. <laughs> and, and Laurie has gotten me rather emotional with her last uh, uh, closing statements. Um, but, I, you know, sustainability equals planet, people, profit. So with blue economy, how do we balance sustainability and, and, and healthy oceans with optimizing the social economic benefits? And, you know, Dave talked about economic incentives. And with that said, we, we really covered a lot of topics about sustainable seafoods. And of course, it's very cross-cutting. We didn't talk about all the possible topics. We didn't talk about, you know, uh, spatial, marine spatial planning and the importance of protected areas and ecotourism. So, you know, the, the economic incentives are really cross-cutting. It's cross-cutting from the standpoint of the value of commercial and recreational fisheries and aquaculture. Let's not lose sight of ecotourism, for example. And that's really important for a lot of countries. And, and the other important aspect of economic incentives are the partnerships. The success in initiatives, and, and Admiral, you've been a leader with this, is building the partnerships and understanding the, 
the value drivers of the partnerships in the various sectors. And the reality is the economic drivers might be slightly different between the various sectors, but we all have the same common goal of sustainability. Uh, so, you know, I, I really thank you for the opportunity to be part of this panel. And, and the message is exceptionally important. So again, thank you for the opportunity. Well, you betcha, Bill, and really well said again. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't help but not volunteer one final thought. Uh, and going back to Jacques Cousteau and his influence on so many of us in, in the ocean community, uh, there's so many other indirect effects he had, and you'll be surprised at this one. I happen to be friends with Admiral Bill McRaven, formerly Chancellor of UT when I met him last. And before that, a Navy SEAL four-star admiral who was famous for leading the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. So a national hero and patriot. And when I met with him uh, at University of Texas, he sh shared with me, Tim, you know, I want to do what all your people at NOAA did. And I said, what was that? And he said, I wanted to get on scuba and count fish. <laughs> and I, I, I was surprised and asked him about that. And he said, well, you know, I grew up on the beach near, you know, on, on the Texas coast. And I watched all these episodes of Jacques Cousteau. And that's what I wanted to be. I, I wanted to study the ocean and, and work under it. And he said he went to the University of Texas and majored in biology. And he struggled. <laughs> and he had to switch majors to journalism just to pass. And he was, he was just crestfallen at, at losing out on his dream. And then one day he walked by a Navy recruiting office and there was a picture of some Navy SEALs on scuba underwater and he thought, hmm, maybe there's something there. And long story short, it worked out for him. So think about that effect of Jacques Cousteau. Probably no one would ever put those two together and, uh, and that's what happened. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but ultimately I just want to thank everybody here for such a great show. You did a fantastic job and, and it was a lot of fun. And so we covered uh, in this fifth leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast, uh, a wide range of areas. And we looked at challenges and opportunities through technology and partnerships. And, uh, and this is just fascinating, the fascinating field of fisheries and seafood. Uh, besides making me a bit hungry, I think all of us, I have a renewed commitment to keep our oceans healthy, both for the populations that depend upon them and for the planet. So I want to thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today. Please join us for our next episode of the American Blue Economy Podcast. We focus on ocean mapping and exploration, a wonderful topic and super exciting with respect to ocean discovery. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.